Ecclesiastes chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, very quickly it says, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity. And grasping for the wind. As we have gone through the book of Ecclesiastes, remember, it asks and answers the question, is life worth living? Is there meaning in life? We might even suggest that the theme of the preacher's message is, can human beings have a meaningful life apart from God? And in the first two chapters, the preacher declares the problem. Is life really worth living? And his tentative conclusion is, not really. And it becomes pretty embarrassing as you're reading your Bible and you go, wait a minute, you can't say that. Life is full of vanity or emptiness or meaninglessness and monotonous and, and as you read, you become impressed with the fact that the king is, is truly searching for the answer of whether or not it's possible to live without God. Like Nietzsche's famous quote, if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss will gaze into you. You may not understand what Nietzsche was saying. The philosophical, the moral, and the spiritual implications create a sense of empty urgency. Which is it? Is life meaningful or meaningless? Does it have value or no value? Are the statements that are made by people who live in this world true when they say there is no God You are a fortuitous accident, and whatever meaning that there is in life, you're going to have to ascribe to it. You're going to have to make your own meaning. And it's really interesting because, remember, he writes these words 3,000 years ago. As a matter of fact, we've been noticing in the news that Stephen Hawking has made the suggestion that The universe simply made itself. The preacher suggests, well, are human beings only a cog in a gigantic wheel? That in chapter 1, verse 4 through 11. And so he uses this word vanity, empty, over and over again. As a matter of fact, I've read this book several times now. I've underlined Vanity 37 times in 12 chapters. That's pretty uh, impressive. If life is so short and so insignificant, why even bother to live? 
The book builds steam and hope by arguing that human pleasure leaves us unsatisfied in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But somehow God has placed eternity in our hearts in chapter 3, verse 11. The book begins with a bitter truth. Life without God is meaningless. And then the book continues with a better truth. Learn to be content with what you have. Learn to enjoy your work. Learn to enjoy your company. Believe that there is a God who rules, who reigns, who occupies eternity. And remember who the preacher identifies himself as. David's son in chapter 1. In verse 1 and also in verse 12, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Verse 12, I, the preacher, was king. Over Israel in Jerusalem. Now, perhaps skepticism or pessimism or has brought you to some similar observations and short sighted conclusions. Sometimes death seems better than life. We learned in chapter four, verse two. Sometimes it feels like you wish you had never been born. You read in verse 2, therefore I praise the dead who are already dead. Verse 3, yes, better than both is he who never existed. And you read these things and you're going, am I reading this in the Bible? Are people really say, are they really saying, I sometimes feel like death is better than life. I sometimes feel like I wish I'd never been born. It's true, isn't it? There are people who feel that way. There are people who have said those things. I've already shared with you that eight out of ten people, it's suggested at some point in their life, thinks about what it's like to kill themselves. One out of ten will try. The preacher examines the whole range of social relationships. He explores the issue of oppression, competition, isolation, advancement. He continues to come over and over to the conclusion, this is empty, this is meaningless, this is empty, this is meaningless. And in chapter 4, the preacher deals with the issue of riches versus relationship. And he decides that probably relationships matter. Two are better than one, it says in verse 9. Friendships make work easier. We walk farther in verse 10. We stay warmer in verse 11. We're able to weather life's storms in verse 12. We learned that last week, and it was like a, it was like fresh air blowing through the book of Ecclesiastes. Whoo, wow, something edifying and encouraging. And now the preacher will contrast relationships and popularity in this section the preacher introduces a story now in the new testament there's lots of stories they go by the name of parable now remember what a parable is it's an earthly story that illustrates a heavenly truth and in this particular portion of the scripture the preacher is telling you A story, a story that illustrates two truths, the instability of political power and the fickleness of personal popularity. In other words, for the person who is living their life thinking, if I was the king of the world, then the emptiness would go away. If I had fame, the emptiness would go away. If I had popularity, The emptiness would go away. 
So this is a tale of two kings. One is wise and one is foolish. One is young and one is old. One's willing to take advice. One refuses advice. One loses his throne by his own selfishness and foolishness. And one gains a throne through wisdom and popular demand. Now, this should cause each and every one of us to ask a different question right away. And that is, can two people occupy the same throne? And I think the answer is not comfortably. I have a friend named Dennis Agajanian. He was in the Guinness Book of World Records of being the fastest flat pick guitar player on the planet Earth. And he once said to me, Gino, you can't ride two horses with one butt. And I, I always thought, I wonder if I could ever use this as a sermon illustration. <laughs> and I think I can. If you can't ride two horses with a single you-know-what, is it possible for two people comfortably to occupy the same throne? And I think that the answer is no. But the reality is there is a governor, there is an emperor, there is a king who sits on the throne of your heart. And that person is you. Or the person is the Lord. And that becomes at least part of the point that we want to glean from the passage. We want to ask and answer the question, who's sitting on your throne? Who's sitting on the throne of your heart? And now let's look at the text again in chapter 4, verse 13. Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. Now, remember... For those of you who are studying this book and underlining in the book, four times the preacher has used the word better in chapter four. Look with me quickly. Verse three. Yet better than both is he who has never existed, who has not seen the evil work which is done under the sun. And then again in verse six. Better a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind. Verse 9, two are better than one. Verse 13, better a poor and wise youth. Now, I want you to think this about this. He's contrasting and comparing something. And what is the something that he's making the contrast with? Already he's talked about friendship in the previous section. So here's the question. Is isolation better than friendship? What do you think the answer is? No. Isolation is bad. Friendship is good. Two are better than one. So what makes this young man better? Why is he wise beyond his years? It isn't simply because of his age, but rather because of his willingness to receive instruction or admonition. The young man 
is willing to be instructed. He's willing to be warned. The old man refuses to be instructed and refuses to be warned. So here's the question. Does age make a difference as far as wisdom is concerned? Not always. Not always. You would think so. Here's what I would venture to tell you. The Bible seems to indicate that age and maturity is usually an indicator of success. But is it always an indicator of success? Is it possible that you can start off early doing the wrong thing over and over and over again? And pretty soon you start to look like me. Your hair gets gray. Your skin starts to wrinkle. And you actually remember what television was like in 1958. Now, age or what the world defines as success does not ensure personal wisdom. And so there's the contrast right from the start. The reality is that you will be open to instruction. You will be open to admonition. You'll be open to warning or you'll be closed to it. Warren Wiersbe writes, quote, the king in the story had one time heeded the counselor's advice and ruled wisely. But when he got old, he refused to listen to them. The problem was more than pride and more than senility. He was probably surrounded by a collection of parasites who flattered him and isolated him from reality and took from him all they could get. This often happens to weak leaders who are more concerned about themselves than other people, and which raises a question. When a person rises to the top in leadership and then isolates themselves and refuses to learn, invariably it's going to result in, in problems. As a matter of fact, I I brought a little book with me. It's called Leadership by Chuck Swindoll. And the opening page is so filled with great instruction. He says, quote, leadership is not optional. It's essential, essential for motivation and direction, essential for evaluation and accomplishment. It's the one ingredient essential for the success of any organization. Take away leadership and it isn't long before confusion replaces vision Volunteers or employees who once dedicated themselves to their tasks begin to drift without leadership. Morale erodes. Enthusiasm fades. The whole system finally grinds to a halt. Peter Drucker's famous line is both timeless and true. If an enterprise fails to perform, we rightly hire not different workers, but a new president. Does leadership matter? Yes. Does friendship matter? Yes. Does the preacher know about the danger of being isolated and insulated? Yes. By the way, in the book of Job, Job argues that the wicked are not always immediately punished and that with God are wisdom and strength. In Job chapter 12, verse 20, in verse In verse 20, it says he deprives the trusted one of speech and takes away the discernment of the elders. What does that mean? In Job chapter 12, verse 16, it says the deceived and the deceiver are his. 
What does that mean? The deceived and the deceiver are his. It means that the people who are deceived and the people who are deceiving can't deceive God. Is it possible for a person to be self-deluded? Does their self-delusion change God? No. If we are deluded, does that change the nature and the character of God? No. As a matter of fact, that becomes one of the key concepts. There are people who will embrace good counsel and people who reject good counsel. And so in verse 14, as he's telling the story, he says, for he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. In the story, the young man who becomes king comes out of a place of incarceration or isolation to be the king. Now, we're not told why the young king was in prison. Clearly, the Bible tells us the story of a young man named Joseph. You all know the story in Genesis chapter 39. You'll remember how he was a favored son. You'll remember how his brothers sold him into slavery. You'll remember how he found himself as a servant in Potiphar's household. You'll remember how he was falsely accused. You'll remember how he was cast into prison. You'll remember how God was using all of these things as an opportunity to orchestrate his elevation for the purpose of salvation for the people. And along the line, does Joseph, when he's in the pit, go, hey, I know why I'm in the pit because one day I'm going to be elevated. No, he doesn't know that. When he's falsely accused, does he know that he's going to be exonerated? No. When he finds himself in Pharaoh's prison, does he know that he's going to be released? No. The point for he comes out of prison to be king seems to be that whoever this young man is and however wise he is, that there are barriers and obstacles and hardships to overcome. So you have an old rich king and you have a young poor man who comes out of prison. And by the way. That seems to be the point. Imagine a world where poverty or disease or hardship conspire to destroy you, but God provides you with a helmet and God provides you with a shield. And even though you've been subject to deprivation, hardship, that the deprivation and the hardship doesn't become the thing that defines you, but rather it becomes the instrument to hone you so that you will submit yourself willingly to what God has for you. That's part of the point. This young king has been provided wisdom as a helmet and a, and a shield. Wisdom lights the way as he begins to ascend the throne. And look at verse 15. It says... I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. Now, here's what you have to understand. As the preacher preaches, he's telling you a story contrasting these two people. The crowds cheer for the young king for all of the reasons why we cheer for an underdog. In the last 
Super Bowl. How could you not root for New Orleans? A city that's been devastated by storm and and obstacle and deprivation. Even the people who loved the other team were going, go Saints, go. Go Saints, go. Uh, You know, it's hard not to root for the underdog. The crowds cheer for this young guy who comes out of nowhere, who is wise and and benevolent for all the reasons we celebrate youth and energy and wisdom and enthusiasm. The young man is wise. He's open to counsel. He's willing to listen to people. How can you not love him? And by the way, do people love wise leadership? I think that we do. Remember, the Bible says that the nation groans when we have difficult leadership. We want wise leadership. We despise corrupt and selfish leadership. And clearly, Solomon knows a thing or two about leadership. And few things are more certain than the uncertainty of leadership. Now, I want you to think about this, the old and the young. Who has more security than the king? The old king who has isolated himself. Who won't listen to people. The king has the power of the kingdom at his disposal. So you would think that kings and rulers should be able to make things change. So that justice rather than injustice can prevail. The march of time and familiarity have a way of eroding popularity. And few leaders last. Coaches come and coaches go. And after the Bronco game last week, there are people who are calling for the head coach's head. Off with his head. Why? You just lost by the biggest margin. Okay, no. You tied the biggest margin in the history of the franchise. Now, I need you to understand something. In his day, Solomon is the most famous human being in the world. Someone once said that fame is like a lover to avoid, beautiful to the eye, seductive to the spirit, fickle to the end. Fame. Fame is expensive. And in verse 16, it says there was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who came afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. Now, you may not be able to see this, but let me help you see this. It would seem that the young man's popularity is also going to come to an end. It's going to come crashing down. Let me read verse 16 in a different translation. In the New Living Translation, it says, Endless crowds stand around him. But then another generation grows up and rejects him, too. So it's all meaningless, like like chasing the wind. Now, in the story, the young man was born poor, but he's made rich. The old king was rich, but his riches, but with his riches came neither wisdom or justice. Another generation grows up. A new person becomes king. That king is also rejected. So what happens to the king who grows old? What happens to the king who in self-confidence rejects wisdom? The cycle seems to be 
The old goes away. The new comes in. He becomes the old king. He's abandoned as he grows in his own isolation. So as we come, we should ask and answer this question. Okay, so what's the moral of the story? What's the point? Well, in the story, wealth and position were no guarantee of success. And poverty and hardship and even incarceration doesn't seem to be a barrier to ultimate success. But as the king is looking out, even at the highest levels of human achievement and leadership, no matter how big you are, no matter how smart you are, no matter how successful you are, no matter how much you have done, it all seems so insecure. I was reading this week a story of some famous former Super Bowl champions. I've had the privilege of knowing several people who are personal friends who've won a Super Bowl. And they own Super Bowl rings. And as you can imagine, getting a Super Bowl ring is a very coveted prize. Charlie Waters of the Dallas Cowboys had five Super Bowl rings stolen from a closet in his home. Joe Gilliam won two Super Bowl rings. He was a member of the 74-75 Pittsburgh Steelers. He later pawned them for a few dollars after being caught in this horrible cycle of drug addiction and alcoholism and homelessness. Another Steeler, Rocky Blyer, who was also a Vietnam vet, sold his four rings to cover his divorce and bankruptcy proceedings. The Cowboys' Thomas Henderson had his Super Bowl number 12 ring seized in order order to pay taxes. Former Raider All-Pro cornerback Lester Hayes sold his Super Bowl ring to pay for dental work. Mercury Morris of the Miami Dolphins sold his ring to raise money to clear his name during a drug trafficking case. The symbol of hard work, of athletic commitment, of excellence just disappears. Becomes a memory. A memento in someone's trophy case. How is it possible that you can have so much and it becomes so little so fast? You know, in history, Oliver Cromwell seized the British throne from Charles I. And he established what you and I would call the British Commonwealth. And he said to a friend, do not trust the cheering for these people would shout as if you and I were going to be hanged. He knew a little something about crowd psychology. And like I said, anyone watching the game last week also understands crowd psychology. Is it possible for this week's darling to be next week's? Effigy that's burned at the stake. Even Jesus. Even Jesus. One week was celebrated as king. You know the story. He enters Jerusalem and the crowds cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And just a few days later, you hear the shouts, 
crucify him away with him. We have no king but Caesar. You know, it's interesting to me as I was reading this and I was thinking about our friend, the preacher. You and I have already talked about who I think this preacher is. The son of David and the king of Jerusalem. I think it's Solomon. Who is Solomon's father? Was David a young man when Saul was an old man? Was Saul an old king and David a young man? And and even though David may have not been in prison, but was he in a prison? Was he incarcerated in the circumstances where he was running from the old king, but he was beloved by a nation and he was elevated to the position of king and the people cheered him. They cheered his father. And then all of a sudden the cheering stopped and people wanted to kill him. And overthrow him and take his throne away from him. Clearly, the tale of two kings causes the preacher to pause. Wait a minute. How can you go from nobody to somebody? How can you go from poverty to riches? How can you go from acceptance to rejection? And so he cries. It all seems so meaningless. It's like chasing the wind. Now, remember, remember what I've said to you in the book of Ecclesiastes. When you see the word vanity, it means not real, not substantive, no value, not permanent, not significant. It doesn't have meaning. You know, in the beach community of Southern California, we would use a term for a wannabe who came to the beach with his surfboard pretending to know how to swim, pretending to be a surfer. The word that you would use was poser. And by the way, that's the worst thing that you could say to a person. Poser. I mean, it meant the person was a fraud. In Texas, they say he's all hat and no ranch. You claim to be a cowboy. But that's the point. The preacher uses the expression to communicate the frustration that comes when you don't understand something about life. And so he's struggling through that misunderstanding, if, if you will, whatever else, whatever earthly goals, whatever human ambitions, when pursued apart from God, they seem to lead to dissatisfaction and frustration. And if human leadership can only provide a temporary solution, what will provide the permanent solution? And so here's the question. Remember, we started with. Who's occupying the throne of your heart? Because it's either a permanent or an impermanent position. When you're in control of your life, when you make the decisions for your life. When all that is is filtered through your circumstances, you run a terrible risk because guess what? The wisdom that you have is probably only human wisdom. And the instruction and the advice, even though it might be. 
the sum and the substance of all of the circumstances that you've ever had. In order to have meaning in your life, there has to be a king who is good and right and who can make the right decision. If human leadership can only provide a temporary solution, what will provide the permanent solution? By the way, are we able to trust liberal leadership or conservative politics as the ultimate answer to oppression or isolation and injustice? Does personal satisfaction lie in leadership, in power, in money, in influence, and in fame? I got to tell you, if history is any indicator, no. Why do we think eternal matters can be satisfied with temporal solutions? You know what? I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of First Kings, chapter 2. And if you don't know where First Kings is, if you are in Ecclesiastes, turn left. Go past Psalms and go past Chronicles. Go past Second Kings. Go past First Kings chapter 10 until you get to page 403. No, I don't know if it's 403 in your Bible. In First Kings chapter 2, David lies dying. He's getting ready to die. These are the closing words that he says to his son Solomon. Now the days of David drew near that he should die. And he charged Solomon, his son, saying. I go the way of all the earth. Be strong. Therefore, improve yourself a man. And keep the charge of the Lord, your God. To walk in his ways. To keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and and wherever you turn, that the Lord may fulfill his word, which he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons take heed to their way to walk before me in truth with all their heart and with all their soul, he said, you shall not lock a man on the throne of Israel. Moreover, you know also what Joab, the son of Zariah, did to me and what he did to the two commanders of the armies of Israel. To Abner, the son of Ner, and Amasa, the son of Jether, whom he killed, and he shed the blood of war in peacetime, and put the blood of war on his belt that was around his waist and on his sandals and that were on his feet. And you might be wondering, why are you reading that, Gino? The closing comments that the preacher's father makes to his son in verse 2 are, I need you to act like a man of God. Question. Did he? Would you say that 300 wives and 700 concubines? Good thing or bad thing? Yeah, that was a bad thing. 
Be true to the word of God. Verse three. Be true to the word of God. God's spoken to you and he's revealed things to you. Will you please be true to the word of God? Succeed or fail? I think it's a mixed bag. There were times when he did good and there were most times when he didn't. Verse four. Rely on the promises of God. Verse five. Execute the judgment of God. Act like a man of God. Be true to the word of God. Rely on the promise of God. Execute the judgment of God. He's going through a terrible time of emptiness and darkness. His father has told him, I've left you a legacy. I want you to be a man of God and I want you to follow the promises of God. And I want you to embrace them and believe them. The Bible says that God has made David's son, Jesus, to be Lord and King. That Jesus is the satisfying and permanent solution to the problem of who should rule inside of your head and inside of your heart. Here are the questions. The promises of Jesus are empty or full. Meaningful or meaningless. In Jesus, is there one shred, is there one molecule of vanity, of hypocrisy, of emptiness? Question. Is Jesus a temporal king or a permanent king? Is Jesus capable of always keeping his promise? Now, think about that for just a moment. If the promises of Jesus are full and if the promises of Jesus are certain and if the promises of Jesus will be fulfilled, if Jesus will not raise your taxes, if he won't cheat on your future, if he won't isolate his followers, if he won't betray his friends, if Jesus, if Jesus, if Jesus will be a pure king and a perfect king and an honorable king and a loving king and a forgiving king and a generous king and a king who forgives your sins and reconciles you to the father and then When you die, he takes you to the place of a permanent position of friendship and relationship to him. Why would you have any other king on the throne of your heart? The story is probably a parable. But in the broader context, I suspect that the preacher is thinking about his own dad. The preacher looks up and realizes the ultimate lesson. God is sovereign. He is the Lord, the living Lord in control of life and has brought balance through life's experiences. That's chapter three, verses one through eight. Remember, as we followed along in this book, I've invited you to think about where you are at in his own inquiry. The preacher looks up and he says, hey, there's a God on on the throne and he's in control of the universe to everything. There's a season, a time and a purpose under heaven. And then the preacher 
looks not only up, but he looks within himself. He looks inside the human heart. He knows that in the human experience that we were made for eternity, that God has made all things beautiful in its time in chapter 3, verses 9 through 14. And then he looks up and then he looks inside of his own heart. And then the preacher takes a long, hard look into the future. Into the very last day. When you've had your last cup of coffee, your last cup of tea, your last mashed oatmeal, because hopefully you're going to live long enough to eat your cereal through a straw. He looks into the future and he sees that the day that you die. And then the preacher looks around. He sees that life is complex and that life is difficult and sometimes life is difficult to explain. And as the preacher looks up and as the preacher looks inside and as the preacher looks into the future and as the preacher looks all around him. He sees that life is filled with mystery, joined by trials and tests and temptation and suffering. And the preacher understands something. That people need help. And people need hope. And people need encouragement. Because a lot of people are facing skepticism. Criticism, pessimism. Solomon may have struggled with pessimism and skepticism. But before the book is over with, he's going to come to some settled conclusions about life. Solomon, the preacher, even as we go through his inquiry, will never give us the privilege or courtesy to abandon the race or to retreat into some safe and predictable lifestyle where there's no harm and there's no danger. The preacher understands that life happens and trials happen and difficulties happen. I want you to think about the chapter. The preacher said two are better than one. Independent life has advantages, but dependent life also has advantages. The, the, the preacher encourages balance. Better is a handful with quietness than both hands full together with toil and grasping for the wind in verse 6. Clearly, what he's saying is it's better to have a little than a whole lot. Clearly, it's good to have the things that money can buy But don't sacrifice the temporal for the eternal, the limited for the unlimited, the physical for the supernatural. In other words, before you come to the end, the preacher is going to help you understand that substituting the temporary for the eternity is going to in the end spell disaster. And you will always be a temporal ruler inside of your own heart. But the Bible says that one day you will wake up on the other side of eternity. One day, the passage that Paul writes in the book of Philippians 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he's the Lord. Again, Warren Wiersbe writes, it's good to have the things money can buy, provided you don't lose the things money can't buy. What is it really costing you in terms of life to get the things that are important to you? I'm going to pause for just a moment and ask you to answer that question. What is it costing you in terms of life to get the things that are important to you? How much of the permanent are you sacrificing to get your hands on the temporary? What is it that you're living for now that's keeping you from living in such a way that you get to live forever? You remember Jesus said in Mark 8, 36, for what shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? For what shall a man give in exchange for his soul? A temporary provision. A sorry substitute. Something as empty and as meaningless as temporary power. Temporary position, temporary fame, temporary leadership. Will you substitute political strength in the present circumstances for isolation in eternity future? The political world of men, in part, if this story has any kind of moral whatsoever, it is Leadership from human beings in the world in which we live is unstable and volatile and therefore dangerous. Does that mean that there's no place for politics in the world of the Christian? No. We're called by God to be good citizens. We're called by God to be good servants. Some of us are given the gift of government and some of us are given the gift of administration. But not one of us is called to substitute the real for the unreal. Not one of us is called to substitute truth for lies. Not one of us is called to replace justice for injustice. And not one of us is called to substitute the temporary for the eternal we have no reason to abandon God's promises for Satan's certainties. We have no reason to replace faith in God for man's wisdom. We have no reason to believe that political ambition will ever replace heaven's rule. Because the most important thing that you could ever, ever do is make sure that your sin is forgiven. To make sure that you're reconciled to the Father. To make sure that you have peace with God. To make sure that Jesus is crowned King and Lord of your life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the word of God. Lord, in this tale of two kings... 
One old and one young. One open and one closed. One wise and one not willing to be wise. Lord, we know that sin will isolate us. Lord, we also know that sin will cause us to believe things that just aren't true. So, Lord, we pray that by your Holy Spirit, that we could see through the veil, this thin veil of this world. Lord, like Solomon, Lord, we pray that we could enjoy those things that have been richly and wonderfully given by you. But all the while knowing the truth. That the emptiness will never be filled by something so temporary. That the darkness will not be illuminated from the light of human wisdom. But that only the light of Jesus will bring understanding, forgiveness, hope, love, and a right relationship with you. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be the king of our life. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's.